Bienvenidos. This is a podcast that explores Latinx media and culture in its many forms. I am Dr. Rojo Robles. And I am Dr. Rebecca Elsalois. And we are Latinx and Latin American Studies professors at Baruch College in New York City. In this podcast, we will analyze Latinx film, television, literature, art, and cultures. We will consider how these works are perceived, analyze them, and investigate the real-world reflections and implication of that work on Latinx cultures in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Latinx Visions. Bienvenidos, bienvenidas, bienvenides. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to this episode where we're talking about Latinx New York City and literature. This week, we are going to be discussing the novel Bodega Dreams by Ernesto Quiñones, which was published in the year 2000. As part of this analysis, I will propose three entryways into Bodega Dreams, a novel that goes deep into the idea of New Yorkan empowerment, highlighting the importance of personal determination, cultural pride, and political engagement in creating a just and equitable society. I'm going to be discussing neoliberalism and its effect on the character of Willy Bodega in particular and on the barrio as a whole. Finally, we'll wrap up our episode with a couple of recommendations, as always, for novels by Latinx authors that take place in New York City. All right, so a little background on the author before we get started. Ernesto Quiñones is a Latino author of Ecuadorian and Puerto Rican descent. He's an associate professor at Cornell University, but a product of public education from kindergarten at PS72 all the way to the City College of New York, where he studied writing. He also taught bilingual fourth grade in the New York City public school system. He's published three novels. His first, Bodega Dreams, which we're covering today, was published, as we mentioned, in the year 2000. His second, Django's Fire, was published in 2004. And his most recent novel, Taina, came out in 2019. All of them are based in New York City. So all of them could... Could, could have been part of our, of our uh, discussion, our yeah. Discussion. <laughs> but for time reasons, we decided <laughs> to stick to one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now, according to the back cover of the novel, Bodega the Dreams pulls us into Spanish Harlem, where the word is out, Willy Bodega is king. Need college tuition for your daughter? Startup funds for your fruit stand? Bodega can help. He gives everyone a leg up in exchange only for loyalty and a steady income from the drugs he pushes. This powerful debut novel brilliantly evokes the trial of Chino, a smart, promising young man to whom Bodega turns for a favor. Chino is drawn to Bodega's street-smart idealism, but soon finds himself in over his head, navigating an underworld of switchblade tempers, turncoat morality, and murder. In terms of its connection to our season, Latinx New York City, Bodega Dreams vividly portrays East Harlem, New York City, in the 1990s. The story follows the lives of Chino, as Rebecca was saying, a young Puerto Rican man who dreams of escaping uh, the marginalization of his community. So through Chino's eyes, we see the struggles and complexity of, of uh, life in Harlem, including poverty, violence, uh, drugs, ethnic discrimination, and racism. One of the novel's main themes is the importance of community and cultural institution and real estate ownership in fostering a sense of belonging and solidarity. Yeah, and another critical theme in the novel is the tension between tradition and modernity, right? Family and street codes. Chino struggles to find value in his Puerto Rican heritage and the traditional religious values his wife Blanca was raised with, with the realities of street life in contemporary Harlem. Right? He also grapples with selling out and compromising the validation of those in his immediate community to achieve success in the city. Through its complex portrayal of Harlem, Bodega Dreams offers a nuanced perspective on the experiences of Puerto Ricans in New York City. So starting with my section, I want to uh, talk today about the New Yorican legacy in Bodega Dreams. Yeah, so in the novel, uh, the notion of Puerto Rican empowerment or New Yorican empowerment is a central theme. As mentioned, their story takes place in East Harlem, also known as El Barrio. 
and it focuses on the life of a group of Puerto Rican characters navigating the increasingly neoliberal era of the 1990s, a period of disenchantment that saw the diminishing power of the activist wave and hope for societal change of the 1960s and 70s. In a way, Quiñones' book reflects on the legacy of the community-led struggles, institutions, and poetics created in previous decades by the New Yorican generation. Now, we've talked about the term New Yorican in the podcast before, but as a quick review and for new listeners, the term New Yorican refers to the politics and artistic and cultural expressions of Puerto Rican immigrants and their descendants living in New York City. The term New Yorican is a blend of New Yorker, and Puerto Rican. And it's used to describe people, political ideas, and arts that emerged from the intersection of these two identities. New Yorican culture encompasses a range of artistic expressions, including literature, music, visual arts, film, theater, and dance. It's also a political discourse concerning sovereignty in the archipelago and the diaspora. New Yorkian artists often draw on their Puerto Rican heritage and the unique experiences of living in New York City to create works that blend Spanish and English, or what uh, some people call Spanglish, and explore things of colonialism, belonging and unbelonging, and of course social justice. Bodega Dreams look at the remnants of the original New Yorkian project of the 60s and 70s in Harlem in El Barrio, primarily through the three different frames, the grassroots revolutionary activism of the young lords, the institutionalization of El Museo del Barrio, a Puerto Rican and Latinx art institution, and the literary works of the New Rican poets. I will now explore how the novel engages with these historical Boricua formations. All right, let's do this. The first theme or topic, or in this case, like group that I want to like uh, talk about is the young lords. The Young Lords were a Puerto Rican uh, social activist organization that emerged in the late 1960s in Chicago. Eventually, a New York group was founded inspired by the Chicago branch, the Black Power Movement, and the Global Socialist Revolution of the 1960s. For yeah. example, the Cuban Revolution. Uh, but not only that one. It was the time and the place for all of this stuff. <laughs> the Chinese Revolution was also very big for, for the Young Lords. Uh, their mission was to fight for the liberation, self-determination, and justice of Puerto Ricans and other oppressed communities. Within New York, they organized high-profile protests such as the quote-unquote garbage riots mm -hmm. that burned trash on the streets or the occupation of a church in Harlem and a hospital in the Bronx. Through these actions, they advocated for social justice, particularly in sanitation, education, healthcare, the maintenance of buildings, and the reconceptualization of urban spaces into service-oriented sites. They aimed to challenge the status quo and create a more just and equitable society. We definitely recommend Baroque faculty, Joanna Fernandez's book, The Young Lords, A Radical History, to dig deeper into the organization. Absolutely. Now, I want to bring a direct quote about the Young Lords from Quiñones' novel. The Young Lords were beautiful. El Barrio was full of hope and revolution was in the air. We wanted jobs, real jobs. We wanted education, real education for our little brothers and sisters because it was too late for us. We wanted lead paint out of our buildings, window guards so our babies wouldn't go flying after pigeons. We wanted to be heard. But first... We knew we had to get the community on our side. And of quote, in Bodega Dreams, the young lords are central to the story. The quote I just read comes from Willy Bodega, the central figure in the narrative and a former member of the young lords. In an early scene, Bodega explains to Shino that after a couple of glorious years serving the community and transforming minds, the lords face internal division and change their agenda. When the young lords got too high and mighty, they began to bicker among themselves. I was broken. I left and knew that the only way for me was to hustle. That's what Bodega says. Yeah, it's tough when, when there is that internal struggle and, and you can't even have that united front within a group, right? That it, It's easy to become disillusioned, as it appears happened to Bodega. 
So by the 1990s, yeah, he was still committed to the organization's program of creating a better life for the people in his community, for the people in El Barrio. Uh, but now he was a secret leader working with a lawyer and partner, Nazario, a very important character within the story. Mm -hmm. And he still mobilized the neighbors around issues such as gentrification and education and created a sense of solidarity and resistance. However... He shifted his tactics, embracing capitalism. Let's remember that the young lords were for socialism. Right. Yeah. And in a, in a specific, he was embracing real estate yeah, and drug trafficking as his, as his uh, uh, socioeconomic tools for Puerto Rican empowerment. Rebecca will explore this in more detail. In yeah, her, yeah, I'll talk section. about that. I'll talk about that in a little bit for sure. I got a, another a quote that it's uh, related to to that. This is Bodega talking, and he says, I got a line of buildings that are being renovated on 119th Street and Lexington, and Nazario is working with his contacts in City Hall on getting me more. Housing, housing, Chino. That's how I'm going to do it. That's the vision. In summary, Bodega became a drug lord and a landlord. He used <laughs> drug and blood money to buy buildings in East Harlem, employing and housing Puerto Rican community members. To maintain the sustainability of his neighborhood domains, he decided to keep an elite group of socios, a great society, what, uh, that's how he calls it, mm -hmm. who could help him create the legal facade of his business. Right. Chino was invited to join that great society. Yeah, <laughs> he wasn't so sure about it, but he was definitely invited whether he liked it or not. <laughs> a lot of the of the novel is about, right, like that. Uh, his pushback. Uh, his pushback, right? And about the debates that Chino uh, has in his own mind regarding that possibility. To some extent, uh, Bodega's vision kept the original John Lord's agenda of occupying spaces for the use of the community. However, he did it through corrupted means, chanchullos legales en español. There's another element in Bodega's plan that differs, right, that is different significantly from what the young lords practice. The young lords considered drug use and addiction a social illness and created groundbreaking drug treatment programs, acupuncture-based rehabs, and mobile bilingual clinics. Bodega was pushing crack into the community to fund his underground real estate Harlem empire. Even with fundamental contradictions and his distortions concerning the young lord's mission, at the end of the novel, when Bodega is gone... Spoiler alert. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> the people in Harlem uh, decided to pay homage to William Carlos Irizarry, his real names, and his early activism, uh, uh, instead of focusing on his days as Bodega. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They care about the ways he empowered people daily by providing money and support in a compassionate way. They value how he intended to create safe spaces for the neighbors to live and come together. His intentions were there. It's just his um, his approach to actually making them happen was where the problems applied. <laughs> yeah, that we have like the, the the great moral dilemma of the of the novel is precisely that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but we have the people in Harlem, right, like celebrating, yeah, the things he did on a daily basis, yeah. And there's like some uh, dialogues from the community, from community members in the novel that says, for example, he once helped me with the rent. He helped out my daughter through school. He helped me and my sister get jobs. He once bought me a case of Miller beer. So the people had taken to the script, but in honor, not anger, says and writes uh, Ernesto Quinones. Mm-hmm. So now I want to uh, move to the second, right, cultural formation that is presented in the in, in the novel, right, in Museo del Barrio. Right. And fantastic museum. If you are in New York, definitely, like, give it a chance. But the the role it plays in this novel is is something very very specific hopefully also like uh this will uh, uh create yeah the desire to go there yeah this, <laughs> exactly. this podcast episode <laughs> yeah but uh definitely let me talk a little bit about about our museo and give you some context yeah mm -hmm. and 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 the role it plays within the novel right so another aspect of puerto rican empowerment in the novel is the idea of cultural pride and identity so willy bodega is proud of course of his puerto rican heritage that's something that is consistent uh with uh with him 
Uh, so in the novel, it is suggested that he is an arts patron and he uses his cultural knowledge to build a sense of belonging in his Harlem. And one of the institutions he supports and apparently constantly visits is El Museo del Barrio. And within the novel, this space is vital because for Bodega, at least, it serves as an example of the possibilities of cultural retention through institutionalization. Mm. El Museo del Barrio is a museum in New York City dedicated to showcasing and preserving Latino, Caribbean, and Latin American arts and cultures. It was founded in 1969, yeah, just like uh, the same year that the uh, New York you know, Lords emerged, right, by a group of Puerto Rican educators, artists, and activists that just like the Young Lords were concerned about the lack of representation in mainstream institutions. So we've got two different angles here. We've got this institutionalization with the museum, and then we have this sort of... Um, this activism activist group yeah. that's that's coming up and so it's a it's a multi-pronged attack to to make changes mm -hmm. so the museum founders were indeed concerns that the rich artistic traditions of their community needed to be recognized and celebrated and on the cultural contributions of puerto ricans and eventually latinas and latin americans were being overlooked by the white mainstream This decision of amplifying its scope has brought debates and controversies over time since some people believe that the museums have diffused the original mission of empowering Puerto Rican artists. Other things that it makes sense that with the shifting of demographics in New York City and in Harlem in specific, the, muse the museums should, as they have done, expand its focus to other ethnic groups. Hmm. Quiñones doesn't get into these cultural fights and in his representation focuses on the museum origins. I, that makes more sense to the context of the novel anyway. So mm -hmm. The museum started as a small community space in East Harlem and was initially called the Museum of the Puerto Rican Community. And just like the novel Bodega Dreams represent, it exhibit the work of local artists and artifacts related to Puerto Rican history and culture. Yeah? In the novel, for example, uh, Chino and Bodega see like art connected to the Drinking's Days. Right. That's one uh, tiny example of the type of works, artworks that uh, were displayed. Yeah. In one of the scenes of the novel, yeah, Chino meets Bodega in El Museo del Barro, and they discuss quote-unquote business while looking at the artwork display. Something happens, yeah, within that section that is important is that Chino comments accurately that this was the only art space where he felt at ease and welcome. Uh, Chino says, El Museo del Barrio was the only museum where I could look at the paintings without having a guard follow me from wing to wing. Yeah, so he's commenting on the criminalization of Puerto Ricans within institutions in New York City. Mm -hmm. To this day, El Museo del Barrio is one of the most important cultural institutions in New York City, representing a wide range of Puerto Ricans, still Latin American and Caribbean arts. And as the novel showcases, it continues to play a vital role in preserving and promoting the cultural heritage of the Boricua and Latinx communities in the area. I've only been a couple of times, but I think there's a lot to be said for the cultural specificity of it. While maybe some other museums have opened up to displaying some cultural art as well uh, from the Latin American communities. I think this gives it this, I, this feel of like a hominess in a sense of like this is representative of who Puerto Ricans are, who Latin Americans are, who Latinos are. And, and it's something that can't be recreated just by a special exhibit in another museum. <laughs> Yes, for example, right now there's a, an excellent exhibit in, in, in the Whitney Museum about like Puerto Rican arts after Maria. And it's fantastic to have that. But it, that is like the first exhibition with Puerto Rican artists in 50 years. Right. So that is the wow. issue that the El Museo del Barrio is precisely addressing. We need our own space. Mm -hmm. yeah, and that is what Bodega is also saying. We need our own spaces. We need our own buildings. We need our own institutions. It goes beyond. And I think we talked about this before when we did pose. Um, mm -hmm. It's not just about having a seat at the table. It's about creating your own table. Right. And making your own space. Yeah. And that is something that really like Bodega believes uh, completely in. Right. Mm -hmm. So the third uh, Boricua formation that I want to talk about today is uh, the New Rican Poets Movement. 
Yeah, we have talked about the Nurikam uh, Poets Cafe in the past. We have talked about its uh, one of its founder, uh, Miguel Algarin. Uh, but today I'm going to talk about how the novel like incorporates these poets and these poetics. A third way Puerto Rican empowerment is exploring the novel is by featuring reference to several Nurikam poets who offers insight into the artistic life of Puerto Rican Harlem. Their presence works in the novel as an intertext that allows readers to connect Quinones' narrative with larger poetics. Mm -hmm. In his essay, New Yorkian Literature, Miguel Algarín, the foundational theoretician of the New Yorkian movement, highlights three tenets of its aesthetics. The first is bilingual orality that to communicate the Puerto Rican condition in a psychic, economic, and historical sense. He proposes a language and even a constitution for survival on top of tar and concrete. This is essential for Quinones as well. The dialogues in the novel look to reproduce the talks on the streets, its originality. Yeah, and, there are, and many of them are in Spanglish. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. The second tenet of New Yorkian poetics is to procure a future and set up protection and mutual aid system. Yeah, here we can think again about the young lords yeah, and the legacy of the young lords. As I've been describing, this is at the center of the novel, too. Yeah. His last point is about creating spaces where people can come and share their writing and sounds. Yeah, let's remember that New Yorkian artists in spaces like the New Yorkian Village or the New Yorkian Poets Cafe uh, have contributed to the development of Latin music genres like salsa, boogaloo, and Latin jazz. Yeah, and uh, uh, maybe hip hop and reggaeton as well. Yeah. Yeah. Algarin and his poet colleagues, like the Young Lords and the artists that founded El Museo del Barrio, believe in the motto overlooked no more and created spaces and institutions to displace interdisciplinary poetics. It's almost in, in a way that, like, the, the New Yorkian poets movement is. It's sort of the middle ground between the other two, right? You have the, the institutionalization of the museum. You have the activism of the young lords. And the New Yorkian Poets Movement, it almost, to me anyway, the way I'm hearing it seems like it's creating a bridge between those two things. Yeah, and here, for example, and this is, I'm going to be talking about right now precisely about that, we have poets who belong and who were part of the young lords, such as Pedro Pietri, right? right. And so in many ways, the New Yorkian uh, poetics emerge, yeah, from that uh, weight of activism Makes as sense. well, right? And Pietri himself, right, it's a figure that also like has been displayed at El Museo del, del Barrio as an artist and it's in its own right, mm -hmm. right? In the novel, going back to Bodega Dreams, uh, we have like one of the last scenes. We have anachronistically, considering that it was the 90s and some of them already passed away, we have the New Yorkian poets appearing yeah, as a collective, right? Along with the people of Harlem, they pay homage to uh, William Carlos Irizarry. Quinones also introduces some of their works and ideas as epigraphs of subtitles of chapters as well. Right. So the novel starts uh, with a quote from multi-hyphenated poet uh, Pedro Pietri's most famous text, Puerto Rican Obituary. Uh, Puerto Rican Obituary is a 1968 poem and he, that he used to perform at the Young Lords Cultural Gatherings in the Occupied People's Church in Harlem. Yeah, the quote from uh, Bodega Dreams says, All die hating the grocery stores that sold them make-believe steak and bulletproof rice and beans. All die waiting, dreaming, hating. End of quote. Uh, within the book, the poem anticipates the characters' experiences of poverty and inequality. One thing both uh, Chino and Willy Bodega has, have in common is that they come from these advantaged backgrounds and have experienced racism and discrimination throughout their life. And this portrayal is essential in Pietri's poems as well. Pietri proposes that poverty and marginalization are a form of slow genocide. He also underscores that poverty comes from white supremacy and its system, and it generates inner division, envy, and resentment in the colonized. Mm. After experiencing cycles of deferred dreams and real and symbolic death, the characters in Pietri's poem and in Quinones' novel use these experiences as motivation, critical reflection, and as a way to create a future otherwise for themselves, and in the case of Bodega, murky as, as it was for his community as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
The other poem that is like uh, mentioned in the novel is Piri Thomas, yeah, and along with Pedro Pietri and Neto Quinones initiates the second section of his novel mentioning him, yeah. This is a gesture that locates uh, Quinones's narration within the legacy of the coming of age in Harlem novel that Thomas inaugurated. As with Pietri, one of the key themes in the works of Piri Thomas is the experience of marginalization and discrimination faced by Puerto Ricans and other Latinos in the United States. For example, in his most uh, celebrated book, Down This Mean Street, Thomas portrays the racism and prejudice that he and his family encountered and even upheld on a daily basis. He also highlights the ways in which poverty, violence, and drug addiction are often the result of racialized systemic discrimination and neglect by government and social institutions. Racism is also being criminalized and denied employment, educational, and housing opportunities, right. Thomas has argued. And Quinones follows this same line of argumentation in Bodega Dreams. Yeah, I mean, it's not wrong, you know, that... that it We talk about this with our students a lot, too, this idea of, like, racism is not just the big things. It's not just the in-your-face things. It's these little moments that you might not even necessarily pick up on. In in the case of, you know, like, housing and education opportunities, it might be a, a lack of even awareness that these options and opportunities could be out there. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a dislike of skin color, right? That right. is very important. That That is something that uh, we highlight in our classroom, Yeah, that it goes beyond skin color and it's a, a system of power, mm -hmm. right? And here we have also that we have to understand blackness vis-a-vis -vis whiteness and how whiteness tries to uphold power, right? Uh, so it, again, yeah, this idea of uh, racism, uh, how it, it expresses itself in systemic ways through Uh, lack of employment, through lack of healthcare, educational housing opportunities is something that the novel like uh, pinpoints mm -hmm. and cares about, right? In terms of, of, of uh, critiquing that system. Right. Thomas, likewise, also exploring his autobiographical narratives, uh, poems and documentaries, the complex issues of identity and belonging that arise from being part of a marginalized community. In Bodega Dreams, this is presented through Shino's recollection of his public school days and the ways his white teacher mistreated them, frowning upon Puerto Rican culture and literature, even when the school name was Julia de Burgos, an iconic Puerto Rican poet. Yeah, that scene in the book is so enraging. <laughs> It's very enraging, and if we consider what is happening yeah, in Florida, in in Arizona, in Texas, yeah, mm -hmm. and how ethnic studies has been like dismantled and attacked. Yeah, we see right. that it's very contemporary right. to these days. Not something of the past, it's something that is still with us. Ongoing. An ongoing systemic issue, yeah, against marginalized ethnic communities in the US. Mm -hmm. yeah. In Thomas's book, he presents similar instances within the educational system of his times, yeah? And he also elaborated on how he struggled to reconcile his Puerto Rican and Cuban heritage with his blackness. Thomas also unveils his conflicts around masculinity with his own family and street peers. This masculinist point of view grounds Quinones's novel too. Through his experiences, Thomas exposes the ways in which racism and discrimination can lead to feelings of soledad and alienation. Through his personal narrative, Piri Thomas offers a testimony that exposes the systemic injustice that continue to plague the U.S. A former inmate, Thomas is also one of the pioneers describing the pipeline from marginalization to the prison industrial complex. Although Quinones's novel only indirectly explores this connection, he also brings the verses of another New Yorker poet and playwright who described life in prison, Miguel Piñero. Yeah, yeah, I, that that was going to be my guess because <laughs> there's no one who like when you talk about New Yorker playwright in particular, like he yeah. immediately and comes to mind. He synthesizes in his work that experience yeah, mm -hmm. really well. Yeah. So Ernesto Quinones starts the last section of his book with an epigraph from Miguel Piñero's poem, La Bodega Sold Dreams. Yeah. And then we can definitely guess that he like transform or reuse that title for his novel. Right. And this is the, the poem that he's referring to, at least one section of it. I dreamt I was this poeta 
words glittering bright and bold, striking a new rush for gold in Las Bodegas, where our poets' words and songs are sung, but sunlight stealing through Venetian blinds, eyes hating, working of time, clock sweating and swearing and slaving for the final dime, running a maze, a token ride. All right. So La Bodega's Old Dreams is a poem by Piñero that explores themes of poverty and the struggle for, for survival in the urban environment, right? In a specific, in, yeah, in, in, in Puerto Rican neighborhoods. Right. In his case, it was Loisaida for the most part. In the poem, the narrator observes his own struggles and dreams and those of the people who frequent an allegorical bodega that stands for New York City or the diaspora writ at large. The poem describes the bodega as a place where the storekeeper or the dream merchant sells not only food and drink, but also the songs of poet that allowed hope and escape from the harsh realities of life, specifically those of Puerto Rican workers in factorias. As Willie Bodega and Sheena observe in the novel, despite the difficulties faced by the people who live in Harlem, Pinero's text also notes a sense of resilience and potentiality even as the neighborhood around the bodega deteriorates. Mm. Ultimately, La Bodega's old dreams is a commentary on the, on the struggles of the lower classes and the human desire for a dignified life expressed through the voices of the downtrodden. Piñero captures the humanity of the people who frequent the bodega in New York City and the complex emotions that underline their search for meaning and fulfillment. And overall, the New Yorkian poets and New Yorkian formations that I have described from Bodega Dreams played an important role in highlighting the artistic and cultural richness of the community and in expressing the dreams and struggle of its residents. All right, so if you were talking about the dreams, <laughs> I think I'm going to be focusing more on, on how those dreams don't come true, I guess. How they collapse. <laughs> how they break down, right? I'm going to be talking specifically about the ways in which neoliberalism and capitalism are represented in the novel. So let's just start off with the definition of neoliberalism so that we're all on the same page. And then we'll break that down a little bit as it connects with Willy Bodega in particular. So neoliberalism is a political approach that favors free market capitalism, deregulation, and reduction in government spending. So those are three really important factors. Neoliberalism, in the words of Arlene Davila, is, quote, the rubric of economic and urban development policies that favor state deregulations. That is, a decrease in state involvement accompanied by privatization and free market approaches, all in the guise of fostering more efficient technologies of government. I think the key word there is guise. <laughs> this is one of the things I'm always trying with the students is to be like, okay, like, let's break this down. If we see these words individually, it's like, oh, that, that sounds great. But when we think about what the actual impact of those elements are, it's a whole different story. And the impact is what I was uh, talking about, the whole cycles of poverty, of uh, death, right? That Pietri yes. describes, yeah, and Piri Thomas also like highlights, mm -hmm. yeah. And also the criminalization of, of the people right. Right, living in these communities. So in Davila's book, Barrio Dreams, she shows how neoliberalism has transformed El Barrio through gentrification, consumption, and marketing in ethnic areas. She informs readers that 93.6% of the population of East Harlem is made up of renters, the majority of whom are Black and Latinx. 93.6%. <laughs> like, that's absurd. That's, uh... Yeah. Yeah, extremely high. <laughs> extremely high. high. Um, and her study shows how New York's neoliberal policies have served to displace the majority of the working class community in this neighborhood as well. And she really has a great breakdown of these, the numbers, the population, and, and that sort of history and trajectory of the neighborhood. The key word here being displacement, of course. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so East Harlem, Spanish Harlem, El Barrio, whichever name you used, right? This neighborhood has the second largest concentration of public housing units in New York City as well. And over 50% of its population is dependent on publicly subsidized housing. But what does this mean? Like, what is the impact of neoliberalism here? So the neighborhood is particularly vulnerable to changes in city, state, and federal policy changes about public housing. So 
if you're reliant on public housing, you're reliant on um, subsidies and that sort of thing, if there's a policy change regarding that, that's going to affect your way of living. And the roof in your head, <laughs> in a literal way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, for example, the move at the federal level away from direct subsidies for the construction of affordable housing and instead towards vouchers has negatively impacted residents of El Barrio in terms of their housing. So that's just one example. But again, you you understand the system works one particular way. The policy changes. Now the system works a whole different way. And it works in a way that is meant to keep you out or keep you down. That is something that uh, Quinones uh, talks about in Taina. That's one of the main concerns of all his novels, right? And in Taina, in specific, it's about uh, public housing. Okay. Yeah, and the projects. So this move towards more privatization of properties uh, has also had a negative impact. While 93.6% of the people are renters, the buildings that they live in are privately owned instead of owned and regulated by the city. This allows for deregulation of housing management and maintenance. And, you know, of course, higher rent equals less affordable housing. So that's where we're talking about that displacement of the population. And Harlem here also stands for the rest of the city because the situation is no different in other neighborhoods. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true, right? And, you know, a lot of times we'll read a novel that takes place in one specific area or city or or state or whatever, and we recognize it as symbolic for the country at large. Here, this neighborhood within New York it's is representative. It's a case study, right, of how the city moves, mm -hmm. right? And how is this place in yeah, all its uh, immigrant communities? Exactly. So in Bodega Dreams, Willy Bodega dreams of transforming El Barrio into a neighborhood consisting of Latino professionals. He believes that through cunning and politics, this professional class of Latinos could lead the neighborhood to economic and political empowerment. Although he's still at the top with, <laughs> you know, being the slumlord as he calls himself at one point. Yeah. yeah. So that, that there, as, as, as I was uh, mentioning, yeah, he shift yeah from like more like socialist uh, ideas to mm -hmm. more like to capitalism in which like there's a, an, an inherent hierarchy and some people are on top and some people are at the bottom. Exactly. And also, as you mentioned, Bodega was part of the Young Lords, right? Um, however, he distanced himself from the Young Lords socialist ideology by turning to mainstream market oriented type of empowerment. He came to believe that it was only by following the rules of the white men in power that Latinos can get ahead in El Barrio. In other words, to get ahead, they have to sign the right papers. They have to accumulate property, money, and power. And Bodega knows that the government is no longer supporting the neighborhood and that as a result of neoliberal practices, white yuppies have started moving in and buying up the property in the neighborhood. So he has a plan to stop this. He has to sign the right papers. He has to accumulate property, money, and power. But as Audre Lorde once said, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Right? Bodega dreams of what Yomaira Figueroa refers to as reparations for his community. Now, oftentimes when we think about reparations, we think about slavery, but the definition of the word extends to one that can work in relation to colonialism and how it affects communities such as Puerto Ricans as well. So reparations are the making of amends for a wrong one has done by paying money to or otherwise helping those who have been wronged. So Bodega recognizes that the people in his community have been wronged and he wants to fix that. He has dreams of providing for and nurturing the community to develop a Puerto Rican middle class in El Barrio. He then wants those newly empowered to wield political power within the city, right? And this is how he's, he's thinking of expanding his empire in a sense. If anyone has watched uh, the Luke Cage series on Netflix, it, it reminds me a lot of the power structure within uh, Harlem The, the other Harlem, I guess. It's not East Harlem. It's, it's like West Harlem. West Harlem. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a similar structure where you have someone kind of using 
selling drugs and corruption and, and owning buildings and property as a way to uplift the community. But of course, the way that they're doing it is these through these corrupt means. So it's just a parallel example, if anybody is familiar. So how does Bodega plan to wield this political power and develop this community, right? With drug money. Now, some of this drug money is laundered through his lawyer friend, Nazario, and then used to buy real estate in Spanish Harlem, which in turn is rented out to Puerto Ricans and other Latina community members. So he's giving back, right? It sounds great. <laughs> it's not that easy, right? Some of the money, though, is also used to fund needs that come up within the community. So people who have medical expenses, need college funding, business support, etc. Willie Bodega is going to help you out with that. And I mean, that is just another, again, as you said, this is sort of a, a micro cosm of a larger problem is that when we think about things today like GoFundMes and how we need a structure like that in place because our government has failed us, but now that we have that structure in place, the government has no reason to uh, to help us out. <laughs> you know, it's kind of this this catch twenty two. Like we don't have good medical assistance, we don't have good college, you know, support, etc. And it's like doubly impacted in this particular community. One example from the novel of. Bodega using his money to fund these needs is when he offers to pay for Chino schooling at Hunter College. Uh, multiple times he offers this. It's like, oh, I can help you out with this. I'll pay for your classes, etc. He wants another lawyer. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's what he wants, right? Well, and that's and he also, it. there's another like uh, more like intimate uh, need happening, yeah, connected to like uh, Bodega's love life, uh, right? And how it is connected to uh, Chino's family. Yes, but the main interest is also like uh, as we were saying like expanding this elite society that mm -hmm. will allow yeah, the Puerto Rican community to hold more more power eventually right and and end the cycles of debt yeah that we were we have been talking about yeah. and poverty and scarcity and displacement I will say the irony of him continuing to offer to pay for his college is that he keeps like needing him when he's supposed to be going to class and like pulling him out of class instead. So he's not even, you, you know, it's, that's the big irony <laughs> you know. of that situation, right? <laughs> oh, and remember that Audrey Lord quote that I shared just a moment ago, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Yeah, well, it goes on. That's not the end of the quote. She follows that up with, they may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And I think that's an important follow-up, right? Yeah, it summarizes, yeah, the, the noble in many ways. Yeah. So it is Bodega's inability to think outside of the capitalist approach to power that leads to his failure. He thinks he can beat gentrification and neoliberalism with capitalist tools. Like, you can't beat capitalism with capitalism. <laughs> You're just going to stay stuck. As Figueroa explains in her book, Decolonizing Diasporas, instead of imagining a subversion of neoliberal politics, Bodega plays into them by providing the resources for a community of Latinx middle-class elites to emerge through the legality that Nazario provides. Bodega criticizes the neoliberal power structures that are in place in New York City, but at the same time, he attempts to replicate them in El Barrio. No radical change can take place if he's just using the same tools and methods that the oppressor uses. Now, Bodega is not the only one to fall victim to this process in the novel. Nazario has his own methods, and his role as a lawyer appears to make him think he's invincible to the oppressor as well. But once he's exposed at the end of the novel, the buildings that Bodega had bought and that Nazario presumed to take control of are actually reclaimed by the city. While the residents are now vulnerable, they do still remain hopeful because of the title of the novel, Bodega's Dreams. And what about Chino, our narrator, right? Throughout the novel, Chino wanted out. He wanted out of El Barrio. He wanted out of Bodega's control. Even as a young boy, Chino would dream about leaving El Barrio. 
And when he brought this up to his best friend, Sapo, Sapo didn't see any reason to want to leave, right? There's that whole bit with the kites and stuff in the early portion of the novel. Chino believed his education could get him out of El Barrio. During high school, he attended a special school for the arts outside of the neighborhood, and stepping out of El Barrio provided the opportunity to consider other options for his future and was likely a deciding factor in him finishing school and going on to college. After high school, Chino attended courses at Hunter, as did his wife Blanca. His hope was to finish school and get a good job so he wouldn't have to stay there. But Chino was affected by Bodega's dreams. It took a while. He, he wasn't easily swayed, but uh, he, was, he was eventually yeah, brought a, over. <laughs> slow transformation, right? Absolutely. Uh, but also he like uh, get affected by, by those dreams. He gets influenced by mm -hmm. those dreams. But then at the end, he departs from those dreams. Exactly. And think of, uh, of that empowerment from a different point of view. Well, and that's exactly it, right? At the end of the novel, we see Chino invite the old man and his grandson to come stay with him in his own apartment. They're looking for Bodega, but Bodega is dead. Uh, and Chino wants to walk away, but the influence of Bodega's dreams allows him a moment to pause and decide to open up his home to them. But as Figueroa tells us, unlike Bodega, Chino wants nothing in return for his hospitality. This decolonial love, as she calls it, is a possibility that Bodega cannot even imagine. So Chino's been changed. He dreams of the reparations that Bodega sought, but not in the way that Bodega sought them. As Figueroa explains regarding Chino's invitation of the old man and his grandson into his home, he transforms a reparation built on drug economies and accumulation into a reparation that is contingent on complex coalition building. So maybe this is where the hope comes in? We would like to, yeah, now uh, thinking about that ending and thinking about, right, Chino's uh, uh, transformation and, and thinking, yeah, of how, like, mutual aid is essential, coalition is essential. Mm -hmm. We want to explore a little more the notion of decolonial love that uh, Jomaira Figueroa uh, Vasquez presents in Decolonizing Diasporas. Yeah, she says that decolonial love is what fuels the work of decolonization as a political and social project. Mm -hmm. Right, decolonial love necessitates ethical actions in the face of visible and invisible domination. Yeah, that that part of ethical is essential. And here, what we have is Bodega failed because his ethics were uh, nowhere to be found. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, there was no ethics there. It was all about power, mm -hmm. right? So decolonial love requires forging relationship based on love and affinity, right? So that idea of uh, love for the neighborhood, affinity in terms of, uh, of the culture is important there. Yeah, but also bearing witness to the violence of the past, yeah, to colonialism in Puerto Rico, yeah, to colonialism and coloniality in, in the U.S. as well. So that is central to achieving uh, what Jomaira uh, uh, Figueroa calls, again, decolonial reparation. Yeah, practices of decolonial love can be found across communities of color in creative, political, social, and cultural, and maybe religious and spiritual forms, and act as reparative forces beyond the scope of capitalist accumulation. Bodega Dreams posits a reparation of the self and reconciliation of the community. Quinones proposes a reparation of the imagination by decolonial love that goes beyond colonial and settler logics. Figueroa says that Bodega's grand vision of real estate power and middle-class aspiration helped Julio or Chino start practicing the colonial love by finding beauty in his neighborhood. Love for his community and the, uh, and the case, yeah, or the example of the grandson and, and his grandfather is, is key here, and respect for the literal and cultural language of the community. So that Spanglish that the New York poets put in, in, in the fore. Uh, in the fore. However, she argues that Bodega's dreams fail because of his reliance on the capitalist model of accumulation and distribution. Bodega believes that reparations for East Harlem will be achieved by mimicking corrupt Anglo-political and economic patterns. And as I think we've kind of summed up for you over the course of this episode, that is not something that is going to be successful. It's not something that was successful. 
and this decolonializing approach is going to have more of a long-term impact on the community in a positive way than bodega's approach <laughs> here of course is like this idea uh, what uh, uh figueroa vasquez is present that is this idea that in order to achieve that decolonial love that is not a, an easy task yeah the coalition building uh, uh, needs to happen mm -hmm. that's why it also like looking at the roots of the young lords looking at the roots of this like movement that empower yeah the puerto rican community in in the 60s is key and see what things have worked in the past and also how things we can like uh, instrumentalize in the present and in the future so the colonial love is a, a very complex and layered process but it requires that work. examining that work of uh, looking at successful models from mm -hmm. the past all right so let's wrap up with a couple of recommendations other latinx novels that center around or take place in new york city Yeah, so if you want to explore another New Yorkian novel about Harlem, but from a feminist point of view, uh, you can read Nilda by Nicolas Amor. Uh, originally published in 1973, this award-winning novel talks about the early generation of Puerto Ricans living in Harlem during the 1940s, a period of war and intense social repression. And like the writers discussed today, more talks about the violence of authority figures against Puerto Rican youth, such as the police, teachers, nurses, and social workers. She also looks at the power of the arts as a method of healing, bonding, and cultural expression. Uh, Nicolás has more uh, a novel about life as a Puerto Rican in New York City offers an on-target look at one young girl's experiences and how she deals with interconnected race, religion, and machismo issues. I'm going to recommend Dominicana by Angie Cruz. Uh, Dominicana is a 2019 novel about 15-year-old Ana Cancion, who is basically forced to marry a much older man named Juan Ruiz, who promises to take her to New York City. Her family sees this as an opportunity for them all to eventually move to the United States from the Dominican Republic, and so she does what is expected of her. The year is 1965, and Ana leaves behind everything she knows to become Ana Ruiz. Life in the U.S. is not what she expected, however. Juan's jealousy and misogyny leave Ana trapped alone in their apartment. Ana spends her time planning her escape until Juan's brother Cesar convinces her to stay. Due to the political turmoil taking place in the DR, Juan returns to the island leaving Cesar to take care of Ana. With Juan gone, Ana is free to leave her apartment, take English lessons, go to Coney Island, go out dancing, and imagine how different life in the U.S. could actually be. By the time Juan returns, Ana has changed quite a bit and now must decide between her heart's desires and her duty to her family. We want to thank you for joining us for this episode. Before we sign off, we want to invite you to share your thoughts with us on this or any episode. You can always reach out to us on social media or by email. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Latinx Visions. And our email address is latinxvisions at gmail.com. We'd love to include your thoughts in a future episode. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or whatever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family and subscribe and leave a review on both Apple and Spotify. Así que nos vemos. Estamos a la escucha. Dale. Until next time.